Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. But since this is episode 93, we have seven episodes before episode 100. Kind of a big deal, I guess. (laughs) I think so. Time to celebrate. I actually may change the tagline. Instead of saying helping filmmakers become entrepreneurs, I'm thinking about actually niching it down even more to helping filmmakers self-distribute their films online. Because in the end, we are all trying to sell our films online and build the first steps at becoming entrepreneurs. Which is a perfect segue to my guest today, which is Corey Huff over at TheAbundantArtist.com. And what Corey does is help fine artists, you know, artists that are painting, drawing, selling their wares to galleries or online. He helps them navigate the internet to bust down this myth of the starving artist. Interestingly enough, uh, Corey's background is in theater and the arts, um, but he got a job at an internet marketing company where he learned all these skills. And then he had all these artist friends that were asking his advice of how they could better sell their artwork online. And it just started from there as a blog that turned into a full-time business. And now he helps like thousands of thousands of artists uh, successfully sell their art online, which I can't think of a better guest to have on the Film Trooper podcast to try to kind of pick his brain to see how we as independent filmmakers could utilize the same techniques to sell our films online. Now, this podcast is a little different because it's recorded live. It's sort of like my old school uh, first couple episodes of Film Trooper. Since Corey and I both live in Portland, Oregon, I thought it'd just be better and more fun if we met up in person and I just brought my recorder with me. So we were having, you know, I was having a beer. He was having a piece of chocolate pie since he doesn't drink. (laughs) That's his vice. Anyhow, so you'll hear some background noise why it's a little bit different than some of the recent recordings here at Film Trooper. But before we get to the interview, I want to let you know, if you just go to filmtrooper.com, that's it, nothing special, just go to filmtrooper.com, there's a new landing page there that gives you one option, and that's really just to sign up to watch this free three-part video series on the new adventures in film distribution. It's something I put together, and I'm really excited about it, and I think it has a lot of value, and it's free. Again, so just go to filmtrooper.com, check out this free three-part video series, and let me know what you think. Without further ado, here's my special guest, Corey Huff from theabundantartist.com here on the Film Trooper podcast. So the idea that you need like a bunch of money to make a film, yeah, it doesn't just doesn't hold water. You know, like you can make a film like Napoleon Dynamite. Those guys had 100 grand, 100 grand. And, I think and 350 to make that feature. Whatever it yeah. was, it was yeah. some really small amount of money. Yeah. But you don't even need that. Um, Last week, I went and filmed an episode of Zombie Ridge hmm. with uh, the the producer was the Haunting of Sunshine Girl Networks. Okay, okay, so Nick. So the, yeah. Uh, yeah, Nick yeah, and, and yeah. Mercedes was yeah. the producer on set for the day. And, I mean, it was really low budget. Yeah. Like, super low budget. Like, <laughs> the actors, held, you know, the actors held the camera. Um, we had everybody bring clothes. And, you know, super low budget. Turned out to be a really cool... Uh, little pro- little little product film, whatever you want to call it. What what do you call these web series? Well, for um, them, yeah, they yeah. do that web series, but they are the mini films. You yeah, know? like they yeah. they do a great job with it, and and there was no like we didn't even there was it, the whole thing was improvised. Oh, there nice. there wasn't even a script in advance necessarily, right? Yeah, 
and I don't know if Mercedes is going to kill me for like giving away all this detail, but um, <laughs> she did say that she wasn't hiding anything. So hopefully that doesn't come around to bite me. Um, no, she's pretty. When you, she talks about the series and how they do things, for sure, they yeah, they're pretty open yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Like they do the like they do the behind the scenes stuff yeah. and talk about how they make the movies and yeah. or how they make their web series and everything. So I think I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. <laughs> but you know, I've done a lot of this kind of stuff that is just. It's not about the money, yeah. right? It's not about uh, whether or not you can get an investor and create, you know, five to ten x returns. You can make something at whatever budget you're at, yeah, and start building an audience and make it, you know. And you might not be able to make very much money with your first film or even your second or third film, but if you keep doing it and figuring figuring out a way to do it within your budget, uh, then you you have room to be creative. You have room to try stuff out. You have room to fail yeah the problem with filmmakers going out and this applies for artists too the problem with uh, going out and getting a bunch of money from somebody in order to make something is you're then accountable to that person creatively yeah whether whether they say they're going to get creative input or not you're still accountable to that person for their money and then you you can't overcome a lot of people resort to throwing money at a problem instead of using their creativity. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. Napoleon dynamite is a odd, like I just, I just love that movie. Right, right. But like it was made on such a low budget and it's a great movie. I, I mean, yeah, it is. I, th- it I is. think it's a great no. movie. I think it's hysterical and it's, I've watched it a bunch of times. Yeah. yeah. You, yeah, I just, you just don't need a lot of money. And then, you know, with, with the work that I do with profession, with fine artists, mm-hmm. uh, painters and sculptors and stuff like that, you can make art with anything, right? Like you yeah. can grab your kids' crayons and make something awesome. You were mentioning that there's an artist that you found that was um, like dolly sticks that were not dolly dolly uh, wood that they were putting some profanity or like something oh. some funny like but they were making a killing on this really like doilies unique, doilies like, yeah sorry, some like, doilies. Um, so she was selling doilies with uh, swear words embroidered in okay them, right and yeah. selling those like oh that's you right. can you can literally sell almost anything. Um, if you find the right connection between what you're what you're making and, and the audience who's potentially interested in that kind of thing, right? And you know, some things aren't going to sell well. And, and I'm not I'm not a Pollyanna. I don't think you can just do anything. Um, and Pollyanna was not as Pollyanna-ish as we make her out to be. Like, the point of the book Pollyanna was that she was optimistic, not delusional. Yeah. You know, and 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 the book come. You know, she makes the point in the book that she knows that some things can't happen, but she chooses to have an optimistic outlook anyway. Yeah. And that's sort of the way that my wife and I look at life. Like you can do more than you think you can with what you have. Right. It's interesting about that. <coughs> Excuse me. The notion. Um, I was just finishing watching like a couple weekends ago. They had PBS had a special two part documentary on Walt Disney and just, it was really in depth. And I thought I knew a lot about Walt Disney and I saw footage I'd never seen before. But the way they put this uh, piece together was really fascinating because there's similarities in terms of his reality distortion as with Steve Jobs. Because reading his book uh, by Walter Isaacson, Isaacson. Yep. thank you, uh, talked about the reality distortion. Yep. And you almost, creatives sort of kind of have to need that of yep. like what's possible, not possible, but it doesn't matter because you need to like, you need to just, uh, I call attain. I call it being functionally delusional. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Reality <laughs> distortion, functionally dis- yeah. delusional. Nice. Because yeah. it's not um, like Hugh McLeod from Gaping Void has uh, a cartoon 
the, the guy like holding up his fist and he says, I'm not, de I'm not delusional. I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> and, and I think it, it applies to artists, in, independent artists, independent filmmakers, artists, whatever. Yeah. You're an entrepreneur. Yeah. And if you start thinking like an entrepreneur and reading what other entrepreneurs are writing and, and talking to people who have been there before and done it before, <coughs> you see that there's a lot of people actually creating something from nothing. The problem is that we get into these worlds uh, as, as artists, we get into these worlds where we're only talking to other artists mm -hmm. and we're not talking to people who know how to make money. Yeah. And so we, it, everybody says, oh, I don't know how to make money. But then we all sit around and talk with each other about how we don't know how to make money. And then it starts to become this self-fulfilling prophecy where we say, well, we don't know how to make money. Therefore, artists can't make money. Yeah. There's a step missing in there. There's a, the, the, there's a logical fallacy there. Just because, just because a group of artists doesn't know how to make money doesn't mean that there aren't people who, that, that, that there aren't artists who are making money. That's fascinating because in the world of uh, filmmaking, independent filmmaking, it's, we call it um, like gear porn. Like there's a lot of people mm -hmm. that get mm -hmm. so infatuated with the latest gear and gadgetry yep, yep. of like the potential of what amazing film could be made or they get, it's almost in the rock, you know, like in, our, in the rock world or music world, like somebody who could play the guitar better than the other person or just like, people get really high and mighty over the technical knowledge they have over uh, the superiority of how well they know a piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. And But you're right, because a lot of the stuff we see online are other filmmakers sharing their films with other filmmakers, but they're really kind of sharing like the process. Like, yep. look at this cool drone shot, or look at this special effects. Check out my film and what I did here. Mm -hmm. And there's still what's missing from that aspect is like, the reason they made the story, what do they really wanted to say with the story? And you realize majority of the filmmakers that I'm encountering, uh, they don't necessarily have anything to say. They just wanted to make a They just movie. wanted to make, make something that where they could show off their technique. Yeah, there was like, yeah. I had a camera and I just wanted to make something. That's kind of like where the essence is. And it's, yeah. it's you're right about, they're surrounded by a world of other filmmakers like, well, how do you make stuff? How do you make stuff? And that's mm -hmm. all it is, not about you created a piece of art, what does it mean, what does it say, and then how are other people making money, mm -hmm. or how do you make money so that you can continue to do so. And we're talking about Walt Disney, and one of um, my favorite quotes from him was like, we don't make movies to make money, we make money to make movies. Yep. And George Lucas even mentioned like, you know, his movie making habit, uh, no, his movie making, I guess, the money he made from movie making allowed him to uh, become an architecture. Mm -hmm. Like so, he can create Skywalker Ranch because that's what his his real love was about. Going there and seeing all the details of how he put those uh, those buildings together. Yeah, but then he went back and ruined his movies. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like my wife, my wife hates the revisions that he made yeah. to Star Wars. My wife's a huge Star Wars fan. There's one way to look at it. I can solve that problem. Okay. Uh, if you look at his the prequels as nothing more than a fan film. Mm -hmm. then you're okay with it. Well, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the changes that he made oh, to the original right, right. movies. The, oh, that, that, right? that. Like, that. So he went, and yeah, added yeah. A, he went and added a bunch yeah. of new band members in Moss Eisley Cantina. Right. I'm a giant nerd. Everybody listening <laughs> to this is going like, to... Um, you know, and then he added... Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like all the stuff that he yeah, added yeah. to the, the special movies. edition part seven. Right. Or right. whatever, like version seven. And, and <laughs> it was because he wasn't satisfied yeah. with the first films. And, you know, he made them whatever. It's, you know, it's his vision. But... Objectively, you know, by by the measure of all the people who love Star Wars, he really did himself a disservice. 
right. by, by trying to improve the technique of the movies, he did himself a disservice and did, it the, did the fans a disservice, Yeah, I well, think. What's interesting is the announcements are they're probably going to release the original versions because Disney now owns the license. They are going to release the original versions. And Disney gets it. Disney gets that yeah. people, people prefer yeah. well, the there's older enough, versions. It's funny because right. in the world of business, if you're going to analyze data, like mm-hmm. what does the data tell you in terms of uh, customer loyalty or customer reaction, there's enough free data out there with movies, documentaries have been made mm-hmm. about the, 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 the dislike of those changes as well as uh, you know plenty of blog posts put out it. So just anybody who now runs the company can look at, we can actually make money now, again, mm-hmm. by reissuing it and getting everybody what they want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. But going back to the, the discussion about technique versus artistry, mm-hmm. um, are you familiar with uh, Damien Hirst? He's I don't think artist. I am. He's a British artist, and he came on the scene. When did when did he do his uh, the the big shark piece? I want to say it was twenty or thirty years ago. Hmm. Uh, maybe not that long ago. I have to go check the dates. Anyway, so he created this piece, with, uh, which was essentially it was a shark that he had caught and preserved in a twelve foot tank of formaldehyde. Big giant great white shark. Wow, I'm, I'm surprised and, I haven't heard about this. Before. And uh, sold it for thirteen million or twelve million dollars. The twelve million dollar stuffed shark. There's a book about it. And, uh, you know, he sold a dead shark for $12 million by uh, saying that he was an artist and giving it the name of, uh, the name of it is something like the presence of death in the mind that can't imagine it or oh something my like that. Like, so wonderfully pretentious. Yeah. Love so, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, whether you think it's pretentious or not, he, he was trying to make a point. Oh, okay. He was, he was saying that, you know, and he'll say, he freely says in interviews, he doesn't know how to draw. Mm-hmm. Right. So when people think artist, they think somebody who knows how to draw. Yeah. His technique is not great. But he had this idea that sharks are terrifying. And people will pay to have a giant shark in their home, in yeah. their art collection. Yeah. Right. And so he's sort of playing with the idea of, you know, people who have way obscene amounts of money are willing to pay anything for a piece of art. And he's also making a commentary on how we project terror onto dead objects and things like that. So it's really interesting because artists, for the most part, a lot of them really hate Damien Hirst <laughs> because he does a lot of stuff like that. Like he does, uh, he's got the shark and then he's got these dot pieces, which are basically just like colored dots on canvas. Yeah. But they are uh, mass manufactured. So he came up with the idea, he created them, but then he's got a bunch of studio assistants and all they do is just paint replicas of these pieces over and over and over again. Right. And each one might be slightly different because, you know, you make little variations yeah. in the brush strokes or whatever. But each, each piece, it's, he's essentially mass manufacturing art and selling them for huge sums of money. And it brings into this debate, is it actually art because it's mass produced? Uh, but then what is the value of the artist? Is the value of the artist the technique that he has in order to make the art? Or is it the concept and the ideas that the artist comes up with, things that they imagine that nobody else has thought of? Fascinating, really fascinating. Kind of, I can see like the uh, for uh, other artists looking into it, it'd be like he's like the P.T. Barnum mm-hmm. of you know uh, the fine art world or the performance art world or something like that. But yeah, that's the, a great that's a great way of putting it. But I, it makes sense because in my head is you're right. The artist, the art has have some sort of transformative value to it to the audience or the curator or the buyer. And if someone is, I'm paying like $13 million for this gigantic stuff, you know, shark in a tank, 
yep. that's serving some purpose that if I had that kind of expendable money, sure. And because uh, now I'm actually fascinated because <laughs> you're like, it's one of a kind. Yeah, go check. I mean, he, he had three or four of them made. Okay. Um, and it's, it, yeah, go check out the book. Yeah. The book is called The $12 Million Stuffed Shark. <laughs> and it is, it is so interesting because it is, is an analysis of, he, like the author uh, tells the story of how the shark came to be. Yeah. And then he spends the rest of the book talking about how crazy the fine art world is in, 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 its, in, in the sense that art galleries and art auctioneers and stuff create this demand mm-hmm. for contemporary art. And, and these people who have just obscene amounts of money spend they buy whatever art they're told to buy yeah and so it, it, it the the money side of of the art is completely divorced from reality huh. like it's this this world yeah, yeah. where that is that is created yeah that totally makes sense it's sort of like the fat i mean i don't know enough about the fashion world but from an outsider's perspective of an everyday layman you're looking at this fashion world or fashion week and i'm looking at like I don't know where anybody buys that, or where, how does that eventually translate to the stuff I buy at Target? Well, it's it's, it's yeah. the same thing as conceptual art. Like fa- like high fashion is conceptual art. Mm. It's this is what could be in a in a made up world, and then we're going to take that and adapt that into something that we're going to mass manufacture at Target. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Let me ask you. So the with the with the similarities between the fine artists the world that you've been working in for uh, several years now yeah about um, six years six years now the and the world is independent like we're talking about the dispelling the myth that you know what you can now make a movie for almost nothing because obviously like um, I made my feature film for $500 without a crew and that's that basically started Film Trooper for me was to like explore these questions in more depth so knowing that that barrier has, is getting more and more broken down, where anybody with the iPhone or anything like that can create filmed content, visual content, that has an emotional transformative effect on an audience, mm-hmm. which is why we love cat videos. I mean, oh my God, my, my family will sit around, we'll just throw it, like we have Apple TV so we can do AirPlay, so we throw it up. Right, we, a, we, we've got this huge DVD library. I could watch Star Wars or yeah, Lord yeah. of the Rings or any you know any movie by Fellini or whatever like I could watch anything at any given time <laughs> and instead I spend an hour watching cat videos it happens like you're yeah. sitting there what I remember like we'll watch my family and I will watch something all of a sudden like wait wait I got my daughter I gotta show you something clicks airplay you know th- tosses it up to the TV and then yep. we then we try to out duel each other wait you, you want to see something we'll see this the YouTube video duel yep and we're literally having like an hour of watching these ridiculously like cute videos I think of puppy corgi puppies you know mm-hmm. or kittens and mm-hmm. it's just funny but it still works because it's a visual experience and we're getting enjoyment out of it or surprise because cats are always they're always have an element of suspense surprise and hilarity <laughs> right right and you know what's interesting is uh the people who are doing super interesting super short films on vine yeah on Instagram, people that are doing like seven second movies. Yeah. Uh, and f- with full on visual effects and, and everything, right? Like, the, what was the one? Zach that King? The, yeah. Like the King Zach of King. King and Vine, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, Yuen, da- Daniel Yuen, is that his name? I don't remember. I remember, yeah. But he, like, the. There was that one where the dude jumped in a car, mm-hmm. like a car that was speeding by, and then he ran over it, ran by, and jumped into the car. And yeah, they used, they used VFX to. Yeah, Zach King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's the one. Um, 
I mean, that stuff's amazing. It is. And it's really hard to make a compelling video in 10 seven, seconds or seven seconds, seven whatever seconds. it is. Isn't yeah. that crazy? Yeah, like, if you can get really good at that and, and build up a fan base doing that along the way, think about how good you'll be when you've got a budget and you can make an hour-long movie. Right. Right, or a feature-length movie, whatever you want to call well, it. What's crazy with Zach, like, you know, McDonald's hires him to do his stick. Right. So he's getting nationally, you know, and it's like, all, like he, he just does what he does. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's the sustainability. I think a lot of um, artists or filmmakers, they get to that place, like, you know, they see it, like, but they, they need to resonate it with themselves. Mm-hmm. And they're still st- sort of stuck in this mindset even myself like i still want to explore like long form let's say long form like the traditional mm-hmm. 80 minute 90 minute 100 sure, minute storytelling hour hour yeah yeah um but that could all change like to see these young people they're just they're just grabbing whatever is their bliss mm-hmm. you know and they're just going for it the funny thing is everybody's like well this is how film should be film should be two hours long or whatever yeah like 100 years ago film didn't exist yeah so the film like the film world is being completely remade now mm-hmm. uh, and and I can go on YouTube and I go to Geek and Sundry and watch their uh, LARP the movie uh, <laughs> series or LARP the series and watch a, a little TV show put on by Geek and Sundry I subscribe to their channel and I'll sit down and binge watch 10 episodes 10 minutes each that's an hour and whatever that is an yeah. hour and 10 minutes no longer than that Whatever it is, almost yeah, yeah, two exactly. hours. Yeah, exactly. But, but you, so you're investing time, which yeah. is now, because there's so much media, mm-hmm. time is so precious that it, that matters. Like, well, however yeah. much time you spend. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's certainly a place for long-form stories. But, you know, if we're talking about, if we're really talking about how to make a living yeah. as an artist, it's, it's hard. You need resources to make a, a, f- a feature-length film. Yeah. But you can do stripped down episodic stuff as a way of showcasing what you're capable of doing so that you can get an investor so that you can get you know enough fans that your fans will uh feature you right so that you can get to the point where you've got a hundred thousand two hundred thousand subscribers on youtube right like with the youtube partnership if you get to that point then your bills are covered when you get to that point you know, there's all these YouTube uh, content makers out there, video makers, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. who are making great money because they've got a couple hundred thousand subscribers, and they can use the money from those videos to finance their big projects. Right, right. So uh, there's there's lots of ways that you can make money as an artist. It's just figuring out and, and going and doing the work and, and not giving yourself an out by saying, well, it can only be done this way. Right. Let me ask you, so with your world um, working with fine artists and seeing the evolution, um, you're able to, like you said, you're able to run a successful online business because that's what you do full time, which allows you to do your bliss, which is you're an actor. Like we said, we're going to be wrapping up here and we got an audition to head to. Um, the, the beauty of it is what have you seen in terms of the progression or like you said there's always the artist that doesn't have the money so you right. have something uh, to offer them on the site for mm-hmm. education right. but then you have those who um, can the mid-level that can invest in their career to take the next step to basically it's an investment into making basically more money to make that sustainable living right 
um, from all the stuff you've seen from artists, what are artists really selling? Like, like when I say that is because like in the world of like railroad, the, the, that old adage, the railroad business went out of business because they thought they were in the railroad business and not the transportation business. Right. Kodak went out of business because they thought they were in the photochemical processing business and not the business of preserving memories. So like if a, if a company or like Apple decided to say we're not in the computer electronic business anymore, we're in the lifestyle business. Right. And so for the world of filmmakers, um, film in general, it's, they say it's a movie business, but the business they're in is actually licensed exploitation. So they're not really selling TV shows or movies. Whoever controls the license, we were talking about George Lucas before. Right. You know, he had this, his famous story was that he retained the merchandise and ancillary rights to Star Wars while 20th Century Fox retained the film rights. Mm -hmm. So he exploited the, you know, the hell out of his toy line, built an empire, bought back the film rights, and then he sold the, the licensing rights to Disney. And once Disney owned that licensing rights, they were like, Woohoo! We are we're going to exploit it to the nth degree. Right. So it's helpful to understand for even it doesn't have to be you know gross about it. It doesn't mean that art has to be um, you know secondary. It just it gives you better perspective. Like for me now, moving forward, I go okay. I see that if I'm going to be exploiting a license, that's one way to look at it. It's really what I'm going to be amplifying the creative. IP that I make mm -hmm. and the amplification comes in the form of maybe my film is nothing more than an advertisement so now it's advertising for uh, something of higher value mm -hmm. because honestly we're used to seeing stuff for free online now right film content and if we're gonna buy or rent something it's between like 99 cents and like five bucks so like independent filmmakers are in the same boat of like oh we're selling Starbucks coffee at four bucks a pop right so we can't most independents can't compete on the volume level, right? Right. So I've been trying, uh, the, I have this free video series I now I offer, which tries to uh, spin on its head to talk about the value side. Not play in the world of volume, but value. Obviously, the Kevin Kelly's famous, you know, uh, blog post, A Thousand True Fans, that concept, like, okay, maybe we can use our films to advertise something of like a $100 value or a $1,000 value. Mm -hmm. So my question is like your experience working with in, uh, fine artists, independent artists, what have you discovered that really, what is, what are they really selling? Yeah, that's a great question. So you're, I want to see if I can <clears throat> sort of expand this or mm -hmm. to put some shape around this. That's what I'm looking for. What you, all the stuff you just talked about to me comes down to three points. There's, there's features, benefits, and distribution. Okay. So, so features is what most people think they're selling. It's the actual product, what it does. So for a filmmaker, you're saying, I'm selling a film. Yeah. Right. For an artist, it's I'm selling a canvas with some paint on it. Got it. Right. Yeah. Um, benefits is what people get out of whatever your product is. Mm -hmm. So the emotion that people experience when they see a film. Or in the case of a documentary, maybe it's the information that they get out of seeing that film. Or, or you know, knowing what to do next or something like that. But for most art, it's the emotional benefit. For most art, it is, this makes me feel at peace. It makes me feel excited. It makes me feel entertained. It makes me feel whatever. Um, so, so there's those two things that the artists need to understand, that people don't care about what your product is. They don't care that you made a film. What they care about is they care about how they felt after looking at your film, after looking at your art. Right. When, when I walk into an art gallery, I'm looking for that piece that makes me go, whoa, 
Yeah. Right? Like I, the first time I walked into the MoMA and saw uh, Jackson Pollock's number five, hmm. and I went, whoa. Right? I literally went, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing that you're selling. Yeah. Right? Not that everybody has to be Jackson Pollock. Right. Um, and then distribution is actually how you make money. Right? Distribution is what you were talking about, about exploiting licenses. It's uh, merchandising. It's, it's, how, it's the actual way that you make your money. But you're capitalizing on the benefits. Right. So, like, in your, the features are there as, like, the framework, but the benefits is, well, it's the P.T. Barnum, like, the, the mm-hmm. one artist we're talking about. Yep. Like, woohoo, you know, whatever the, the loudspeaker, what he's yelling out. Like, right. You know, you want to see the thrills. You want to feel, you know, you want to feel this transformation. You want to feel unique and cool, like, uh, or whatever it might be. But the, that method of distribution, like you said, it's the means, the me- me- mechanisms of the selling process. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. What do you have in your in your house? Is there a poster or a piece of art that you have that, uh, and what is the emotional benefit that you've gotten out of it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have a lot of art. Oh, uh, good. You can imagine. So, like, if I'm thinking about some of the art that's on my wall right now, most of it's still boxed up because we just moved back in, but thinking about the pieces we have, um, there's a piece from an artist named Natasha Westcote, mm. and she does these uh, sort of abstract fantasy trees, and it just makes me happy. It's, it's over the couch uh, in my living room, yeah. so when I walk in the apartment, uh, it's the first thing I see, basically, besides my cat. And <laughs> he comes to the door, but I walk in the door and I see that, and it just makes me smile. Like it's just a happy piece, and it lightens the room, and it it makes my home feel like home. Yeah, right. Uh, and then there's other pieces. Like my wife has some art from the artist Amy Rupel, uh, and for my wife, you know, it makes her feel at peace. It makes her feel uh, like she belongs. It, you know, so that that sense of having stuff that really makes you happy in your mm-hmm. home. Um, and, and for other artists, you know, some collectors really want to, like there's, a, there's a P, uh, an artist here in Portland named Chuck Bloom. Hmm. And his pieces make me think, like they're just intriguing. And I can just stare at them because they're, they're full of all these weird little details and these distortions of, of reality. And, and the feeling I have when I look at them is a feeling of wonder. Huh. Like I look at it and go, huh. Or, you know, I've seen the piece a hundred times. I go back, I can look at it and go, wait, what's that? Yeah. Right? Like that, that intrigue or mystery, that kind of stuff. That's fascinating because if art's, you know, generating that sort of transformative emotional benefit response from you, uh, and, and like I have my own pieces at, at home too, uh, music has a way of creating this different sensorial experience where you can listen to this song over and over or you haven't heard it for a while but you'll hear it again and it it's like the sense or the smell memory like it brings back memories of whatever that time period mm-hmm. like uh you know <laughs> like when i was in junior high i was obsessed <laughs> with mariah carey so so now every time i hear a mariah carey song i think about junior high all over again both good and bad yeah, yeah. right but but yeah like i know what you're talking about uh sia just put out her new song alive Mm-hmm. Have you heard this song? No, but uh, my daughter listens to a lot of her stuff. Right, so. and it's just this visceral, painful song. But I listen to it, and I, I've listened to it like three dozen times. It's only been out for a week. 
Um, she is pain, isn't she? She, she is. She, she, she is. Like, she a lot is, of her yeah, songs are yeah, like pain. Totally. Yeah. I mean, her <laughs> yeah. her last album was called One Thousand Forms of Fear. Yeah. So it's you know it's she's confronting her own pain. Yeah. And the song is just this soaring, epic, painful song, and and I love listening to it because it just. It, it strikes this chord within me that is just like, oh, like, yes. Interesting. <laughs> I, and, and that catharsis, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's a challenge for these, for us, independent filmmakers, mm-hmm. is a lot of times the films that we make, they're almost like one-offs. They're so, they're so fleeting. There's not, um, unless you make something that strikes this emotional chord mm-hmm. that allows you to have repeat viewing, or, you know, if you, it's, Sometimes to me, like uh, 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 a signing of a successful film was a film that many years ago, if I would see it on like a Sunday, Saturday afternoon on TBS that was on a rerun, that I would, you know, doing laundry or something, stop and have to watch half of it. Yep. You know, just because it existed and it, it caused me to stop and, and have that reaction. But there's like, yeah, there's only handfuls of films that my family and I will sit and watch through over and over, like yep. re- repeat viewings. Yeah. And that's because those films, they hit a, a strong emotional chord. Yeah. And, and I imagine you guys don't sit around and talk about how technically fascinating the film is. Nobody. Nobody no. cares. No. Yeah. Uh, well, the, one of the uh, people, some, uh, the film Once, right? Have you seen oh this film? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The music of that. Oh, my gosh. The, the authenticity of that. Oh, I cry so hard every time I see it. It's a Broadway musical. Yeah. The funny thing is, is like it, it drives like cinematographers nuts mm-hmm. because it's like the most crappily shot Crappily made movie. movie. Yeah. But it didn't mm-hmm. matter because... The audience reaction from yeah, it was. It's, it doesn't matter how good your technique is. It doesn't matter. Sorry, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like, I don't care about your technique. Yeah. I care about how you make me feel. It's interesting because I just finished uh, listening to a podcast. Um, one of my fellow uh, indie film podcasters at the Indie Film Hustle, Alex Ferrari, he interviewed um, this screenwriter or teacher. And um, I forget his name, Miguel something. I don't forget his last name. But he was talking about, he has this whole book and series about the emotional um, aspects of it, of, of the storytelling. He's like, yeah. look, if you don't make a scary film, like people are going to remember your film if you, if they, re- they're going to love it and come back to it if they remember they got scared from it. Yep. Like if that was your whole job to make a horror film and you didn't scare people, yep. then you didn't succeed at delivering the benefit. You didn't yep. deliver the benefit of scaring them. Yep. Or if it's a drama or thought-provoking or it's a romantic comedy, if you didn't give them the warm, you know, fuzzy feeling of like a, war- a romantic comedy is supposed to do, then you didn't deliver on the benefit, which yep. is like in the world of business, you know, there's a difference why, you know, uh, one company has succeeded delivering the benefit better than another company. Yep. You know, that's just, that's what happens. So it's fascinating. People, people always make fun of, like, like hardcore uh, develop, like software developers mm-hmm. and hardware geeks make fun of Apple because you know you can get a machine with the same specs the same technical specs for half the price oh yeah but it doesn't deliver the emotional value that an Apple product does you know it's it's Apple products are super easy to use they look nice uh, people care about aesthetics yeah. right like my wife um, she cares so deeply about how the things we have in our home look yeah that she gets mad if I bring home an electronic that looks ugly Interesting, right? It's gone, it's she, the yeah. designs like she just cares that, that much. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And and we're lucky enough that we can can have nice things, right? So yeah. so having something that's well designed and looks beautiful really matters. Um, once, let's talk yeah. about once. Some yeah, more. yeah. Uh, 
so I saw the mu- the Broadway musical before I saw the film. Oh wow! And okay, that's and, a different was, experience. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I'm theater geek, right? Yeah, yeah. And I went to New York for a business trip and decided to catch a couple shows while I was there. And I just bought a single ticket to once, and I'm sitting like by myself in the audience and just sobbing, just tears streaming down wow. my face at the end of the show. And um, and I and and that experience made me want to go back and see it again, right? Like I'm yeah. so unha- I'm so sad, but I can't wait to do it again, and I can't wait to bring a friend. Like I, the next time I went to New York, I brought my wife with me, and I brought and I brought two friends. I got two friends to buy tickets and go with us, right? Yeah. Like that's the kind of stuff that gets people not only watching it once but over and over again and then bringing friends along right yeah like you can you can have a viral hit if you make something that really hits an emotional strong emotional chord yeah so there the theatrical experience like right mm-hmm. it's it lingers with you throughout yep. your life yep and, and then and then i went and bought the soundtrack uh-huh. and then i bought the film soundtrack and uh, and so i have both of them Right, license exploitation. Exactly. <laughs> You're like, I'm gonna. It's like I'm gonna buy all different versions of it yep. because you have to have that. Yeah, and and it works for artists too. I was just talking to an artist who, uh, you know, she she makes a lot of original art. She's mm-hmm. got a couple hundred pieces of original art that she has in inventory, and she makes a living as an artist. But she's never or has only sold a handful of original pieces. But she sells several hundred dollars worth of prints of her art every single month. And then she teaches classes. She teaches people how to make the art that she makes, right? And then she has a licensing deals where people will take the images that she's created and put them on their products. So, it, hmm. you know, license, yeah. like license yeah. exploitation. Yeah. Uh, there's all these different ways that she can make money off of her art, even though, you know, buying an original piece of art is pretty expensive. And so she only sells one of those every once in a while. Yeah. But she still makes a really good living doing what she's doing. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, it's great to hear that. I'm wondering, I'm trying to think, like, that's what, that's like sort of the barrier for these the filmmakers, most of them. Like, I kind of maybe take it for granted that everybody could just maybe just pick up a camera, shoot something, and edit it, and be done with it. Right. There, there, I do know that there, I'm finding people that just want to specialize in screenwriting. They want to specialize in being a director or just be a producer. Like, but I'm seeing the new generation come up. They don't know any difference. They shoot, edit write the whole thing you know mm-hmm. so they may um, and they're they form their buddies and stuff like that they form like a group and they're able to like get things going mm-hmm. uh, and that collaboration process but still you can get out of hand in terms of like how big because everybody kind of wants to wants to go big and nobody's really wants to like go small sometimes you can do so much if you stay focused and stay small mm-hmm. uh, one of my good friends from college, Nick Dunn, Sneak Attack Films, shout out, okay. <laughs> uh, in Salt Lake City. He, I, I was just, just thinking about him while you were talking about this. Uh, when we were all in college, you know, we were doing the acting thing and stuff, and then he started writing screenplays. Mm-hmm. And we all thought, oh, yeah, sure, he's going to be, you know, he's going to write. And he has. He's had a couple, of, a couple of things optioned. He's had some plays produced. But he and a couple of other guys got together and just started making films on their own. Uh, initially, it was just experimentation to see what they could do. But now they're making films. They've got a couple of feature films optioned. They've got, uh, they did a Kickstarter for a project that got funded. They are doing uh, commercial work for local businesses there in, nice. in Utah. And they're also uh, working as a second crew 
for when some of the big uh, feature films come into town okay. uh, in Salt Lake City. Yeah. So they've got like all these different angles that they're working to make money off of their filmmaking, and all of them have like like there's can't remember if there's three or four guys involved over there, and each of them have their own little specialty. Like one guy is really good at VFX, and Nick is a writer, and and so they all have their little specialties, but they also all fulfill multiple roles within their their little company right and they're just they've just figured it out and made it work for themselves so that's that's really fun to see yeah definitely let me i'm going to double check the time i know you have to get going hold on a sec 404 okay yeah. um we can wrap it up here quick let's see it. well i wanted to ask Watching your again your experience working with the fine artists, mm -hmm. and then we're seeing the parallels with everything from authors, mm -hmm. musicians, and now filmmakers, video makers. Mm -hmm. um, what seems to be like the biggest mistakes like artists make in, that in terms of succeeding online? Because um, if that's where we're basically selling our wares, because everything is becoming a digital entity, right? Books, music, and now film. I mean, yep. it is a digital product. So where where's the? Um, I don't know if it's so much a mistake as it's just a mindset of okay. fear. A lot of artists think, well, I, I I think I could sell online, like it's theoretically possible, but I don't know how to do it, and it's intimidating. So instead of just jumping in and getting your hands dirty and making mistakes, people try to do research and research and research until they basically lose all their momentum. Yeah. Uh, I had a, a good friend, this is a really good example, and I'm gonna see if I can share this story without embarrassing <laughs> him. Uh, so I had a good friend and he's spent like six months researching his latest artistic project. And he had an idea of what he wanted to do and we, like months ago. And we talked about it and I said, you should just go do it. Like, you don't need to go do a bunch of research. Like, you have enough experience making your thing. You could just do it and then just bring everybody along for the ride. And, uh, and he has spent months researching it. And then the other day he texted me and said, crap, this other person <laughs> did what I wanted to do. He made a made a thing that's very similar to what I wanted to make, and just announced it. And he's got a big audience, and and all these people that I know are have lined up behind him to help him launch this thing. And he's so mad because he knows all those people, and he could have just got all those people to to help him launch this thing. But he spent all this time researching it and getting prepared. He didn't really need to do that. And now, and now his thunder has been stolen, so to speak. Yeah. Now he can pivot a little bit. He can just, you know, position it a little bit differently or call it something different. Yeah. But the point is that he wasted months researching. Yeah. When he could have just gone out and made the thing. That whole analysis or paralysis by analysis. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I see that happen a lot. I see, uh, you know, I've been I've been running this business for six years. And there's a couple of artists who have been reading my blog for that long who have never gotten anywhere. Hmm. And I talk to them and it's, well, my website's not ready yet. Well, it's been five or six years. Like, there's no, like, that's not an excuse. Yeah. If your website's not ready is not a good excuse. Whereas other people have come along, looked at the information that I offer, gone out and killed it and figured out how to quit their day jobs and make a living from their art. Right? And, and everybody comes along and develops a different pace and, and everybody's different. But I do see fear 
holding people back a lot. And that's probably the biggest thing. And then the other one is uh, just lack of knowledge. Yeah. You know, there's, there's an incredible amount of knowledge out there that is freely available. And then there's a lot of knowledge that's available with just a little bit of an investment. And it, it probably has its root in fear. You know, you, you can't find the information because you're afraid that it's not the right information or whatever. I don't know. But the, the lack of knowledge. And I see a lot of people, you just give them a little bit of knowledge and they run with it, right? Yeah. yeah. And others are just, yeah, interesting. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank I, you so much. I, I appreciate you having me on. And if anybody wants to uh, find me online, you can go to theabundantartist.com. Uh, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at a good husband. It's a reminder <laughs> to myself. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's a good one. I'll make sure I share everything in the show notes and, and all the other, like even past uh, podcast episodes you've had so people can get a better understanding of uh, uh, what you're doing and, and how you're helping uh, fine artists. Um, and I'm, I'm excited because I do see the parallels and, I'm, and I see your experience and how you're helping artists uh, you're definitely like further down the timeline where I am in Film Trooper. I'm just sort of beginning in that respect to see how, what ways I can best help filmmakers, you know, and explore this this pain point that's not really, um, not too much yet. I think there's, there's more and more people coming on the scene that are, that are exploring this, mm -hmm. but I think we haven't really quite turned on a, on a mass scale this uh, this sector, the independent film world. I think you're this. doing a really interesting thing. That, you know, you're, you're being open about exploring this and figuring it out and taking people along with you for the ride i think that's super interesting yeah no well, thanks yeah i because i'm i'm interested for myself because i said i made this one film i put it online and you know i made my money back i can make another 500 dollars film but it's one of those things like you you know once you make a little bit of money online you're like well wait how do you make it's a money? drug yeah like it's and then, a drug and then it takes me just down this whole path of really what filmmaking was about and yeah. as we're talking today about the real essence of the art and the emotional um, benefit, the transformative benefit that we have to provide. And it totally puts you in a different headspace because we're like, a lot of it for me, uh, for Film Trooper 2, was is there another system outside of the Hollywood system that you can build a foundation from mm -hmm. that still gives you the same aesthetic, artistic um, fulfillment? Um, but once there's a framework to that, knowing, okay, cool, I can make that. If I use my film, maybe to promote a bigger price product, but as long as the product I'm selling is in alignment with this whole benefit thing, mm -hmm. um, that's cool. Then I can get back to the root of what makes this so enjoyable, making art of any kind, yep. is just focusing on that. And I like the idea of like focusing on it and not necessarily having to uh, make it for other filmmakers, you know, as an audience. Like, Film Trooper is there for other, for other filmmakers as an education platform or ex explore exploration platform but uh the finished product goes to another audience you know <laughs> that's yeah. exciting but thank you so much I yeah really thanks thanks again it's uh, I'm, i really appreciate it so that concludes my interview with Corey huff at the abundantartist.com i had a lot of fun just like you know talking shop and kind of picking his brain and getting his perspective on things um, because he's been able to successfully help so many fine artists artists in general navigate and successfully sell their art online so I hope you got a lot of value out of it as well. And speaking of value, if you like the podcast, please leave it ratings and review over at iTunes. Just go to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes and leave a ratings review because we're getting close to 100 episodes and I would love to be able to 
get more exposure for this uh, podcast. So at least it lands on like the first searchable page when you type in Film Trooper on iTunes. Oddly enough, it you know you type in Film Trooper in iTunes and the podcast doesn't show up until maybe like you know uh, a couple you know pages down or something like that. So I would love with the ratings and review to at least get it up closer to the front page of this search. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. I appreciate all your support and I'll see you next time on the Film Trooper Podcast. Mm-hmm.